Okay, for tonight we're going to be talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's an interesting study. Why do you think we need to, to need to talk about that? Do we know who he is? We say we do, right? I don't like staying back there. I can say that I know half. Well, I do know half. I know who he is. And I know that he's married to Lynn. I know he's got a bunch of kids, grandkids, what have you. I could know what Pat used to do. He used to work at Kroger's. Now he works for that other place. In the bank or whatever. He's got a better truck than he needs. He's got a better truck than he needs. Yeah, he got a better truck than Kroger did. And that's for sure. So... But I really don't know a lot about Pat. Not the things that I would know if I really, really, really knew Pat. But we spent a lot of time together and talked and talked in not surface levels about sports and other things, but we talked about serious things that I would get to know it. And that's where we need to be with our study here on who Jesus really is. We we call him Lord, we call him Jesus, we call him Savior, we call him Christ. There's meaning. Uh, biblical names have meanings. Uh, today we just name things, we name people. Uh, some people, I think, they just take the Bible box and they turn it upside down. Whatever letters came up, that's what we're going to call our kid. Doesn't make sense, has no meaning, but words, names in biblical times had meanings, and we have some of them here. Lord was a title of honor. We are to be subject to him. Now, that wouldn't be a very popular subject in most areas today. It's politically incorrect to say that. When, we, when you talk about Christ being the Lord, that puts us in a different relationship to him, because that makes us his slaves his servants, and we answer to him. And that's not a bad thing, okay? We, we shouldn't let the society look down on that the way that they do, because it is a good thing. We call him Jesus, which is the Greek word for Joshua, which means he's a savior. And savior means Christ was the God's lamb, from John one twenty nine, And Christ means he's the anointed one. He's Messiah. In Matthew chapter 16, let's turn there. Turn with me to Matthew 16 to get started here. In Matthew 16, 13, Jesus asks a very simple question of his disciples. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Simple question. What was their answer? Right. John the Baptist. Some saw you as John the Baptist. Who else? Elijah. Elijah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Prophets. Some of them probably, some of the disciples, they don't record it here, but they might have said, well, they say he's just a good teacher, he's a healer, he's a miracle worker. Then Jesus turns the table on him. I don't think he was trying to trick him. He just wanted to know. 
But he says, but who do you say that I am? What was Peter was the first one to jump up and answer. What did he say? Right. And Jesus said, Peter, it's the right answer, buddy. But I want you to know something, Peter. It wasn't because somebody else told you that. It's because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. This is the first indication that Peter actually got it. And it's, it's interesting that it was Peter that responded because who was the one who always responded wrong or jumped in and put his foot in his mouth at different times? It was Peter. But here Peter is actually giving the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Somebody look up John eight fifty three. And read it once you find it. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead, who makest thou thyself? So this was the uh, this was the Pharisees asking him who that he said he was. And in uh, verse fifty eight, what, what was his response? Before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus was telling them, I am God. I am equal to God. If you remember, when Moses was speaking with God, and God was telling me, I want you to go to, uh, to Egypt, I'm going to have you lead the children of Israel out. And he said, well, what should I tell them if they ask me who you are? Who sent me? And what was his answer? Tell them, I am has sent you. Jesus is, re- is relating himself to being the I am. There's a lot of I am statements from Jesus in the New Testament. I didn't record them and didn't put them up on here. But wonder, what are some of the things that Jesus said I am? I am what? Truth. I am the truth, the light, and the way, right? I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am... There you go. And it goes on and on. And his final statement in John 8, 58 was, I am. I just, I am. I've always been. When John started his book of, the book of John in John 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in 14, he says, and the word became flesh and it dwelled among us. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He was and is and always will be God. Okay, let's talk about the incarnation. He is the God who became man. In the incarnation, uh, Christ never ceased to be deity. Colossians 2.9. Somebody have Colossians 2.9? Could read for us. Anybody? Quick. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He didn't give it up. Christ added humanity to his deity. Um, Matthew 17, 1 through 8 was the transfiguration. So when, he, when he went on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them, and his, 
and his glory shone around them. And Christ voluntarily set aside or emptied himself, according to Philippians 2, 7. He set aside his godly attributes. Well, what did he set aside? Well, John seven fifteen says he set aside his glory, except for the time when he did the transfiguration. He set aside his independent authority. He set aside his open display of divine attributes, such as Matthew 24 and 36 says. He set aside his eternal riches, and he set aside his face-to-face relationship with his Father. He was able to commune with the Father the same way we do, through prayer, but he, wasn't no, he was no longer able to sit down across the table from him and have a face-to-face conversation. He gave up a lot in order to become a man. Now, why was it important that he became a man? Have you thought about that? Why did Jesus have to become a man? Why couldn't he just stay God? He couldn't be Okay. He had to experience everything because Jesus experienced everything that you and I are going to experience in our lifetime. Emotions, pain, sorrow. If he hadn't done that, how was he going to relate? I was thinking about this. How could we illustrate that? For men, for us men, it should be easy. We could say, I know what it's like to have a baby. Can we? No, because we never have done it, right? We've never been pregnant, never gone through that nine months of whatever it is that happens to the human body when it has another human body inside of it, and then all the pain that goes into what's involved with it, and then all of the emotional changes that come about afterwards. We can only be a witness to it. We can never experience it. Because contrary to what modern-day Fools are telling us that men can become pregnant and men can do this and men can become women and women men, no, it's not that way. God created man and woman and he intended for it to stay that way forever. His self-emptying or self-humbling and taking on the form of a bond slave has led some people to believe that Christ is not God. Christ said, I can do nothing on my own Initiative. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's in John 5.30, and in John 14.28, he said, The Father is greater than I. Christ had to be a man so that he could die in man's place. Let's look at uh, Matthew 20.28. Matthew says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came as and made himself a bondservant of his Father. He came here to serve. Sometimes we have a hard time reconciling that, that Jesus, who was the Son of God, came to be a servant, and he even made the statement, if you want to be great, you need to be, what, the servant of all. Uh, Sometimes serving is easy, sometimes serving is hard, isn't it? Um, You often feel like you're not appreciated. Jesus came, and he said he was a bondservant. The Apostle Paul said he was the bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduced himself in most of the epistles. 
as the bond servant of Jesus Christ. What's a bond servant? We know it's a slave, but what, what is a bond servant? Why was he a slave? Or she a slave? Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, but not quite. They were a bondservant because they chose to be a bondservant because they had been allowed to go free, but they had such a love for their master that they decided to stay with the master. And so they became his bondservant, to stay in servitude to him out of love for the one that they served. When we serve, do we really serve as... Jesus did with a love for the one that we are in service to? Or do we do it for show? Or do we do it for glory? Or do it for because <coughs> sometimes we do things because they have to be done. But he was became the servant and he used the bond servant and he was obedient to Christ even to the obedient of death. Christ had to be God in order to be a sacrifice. Christ's sinlessness cannot be explained apart from his deity. What's Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He had to be God because he had to be able to pay the price that God required for sin, and that was a perfect sacrifice. He was the only perfect one. I don't know about you, I don't even come close. <laughs> and I don't think any of us in this room come close to being the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was. He paid an awful price for your sin and for my sin, and he did it willingly. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 45, he says... So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are the earthly. And as is the, as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. He wasn't from here, he was from there. And he came, and he came willingly. And he came to pay the price for our sins. He's the man who's God. The deity of Christ is demonstrated in his attributes, and I've listed some of his attributes here. Um, let's go through and let's do these, uh, let's look at these verses, because I think it's important that we understand this about him. Uh, someone who... Take uh, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. What's it say? And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What's what? What follows that? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a great commission. He has the sovereign ability, he has the sovereign responsibility of sending us to do 
the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was the sovereign over everything that's happening. That's comforting. I don't know about you, but I find it to be extremely comforting in the way the world is going today with all the conflict that's in the world. It doesn't even take all the conflict in the world, just the conflict in the U.S. to see the way our country has spiraled downhill and been disintegrating from within. Um, I just read articles about whatever happened at the Grammys with all this satanic business, worshiping Satan, uh, somebody even mentioned to me this morning that there's several schools in the area that are allowing Satan clubs in the schools. They said, well, you have Christian clubs, we can have Satan clubs. So it's just, but it's no, it's good to know that even though all this evil is going on all around us, all of these things are deteriorating, there's a God who sits on the throne and his son is sitting in the right hand. They're sovereign in control of everything that's happening. And there's nothing happening in the U.S. today that God hasn't sovereignly allowed to have happen here because it's part of his plan and his purpose for the world and what he's got going and what's going to take place. There's never been anything that caught God by surprise. You didn't do anything that caught him by surprise. And you never will because he knows he's sovereignly in control of everything that's going on around us, and he's dictating what's happening in your life. Now, there's things that you do that are really stupid, and he allows those things to happen. He doesn't stop you from doing it. It doesn't mean that he caused you to do it. It just means you did it, and uh, hopefully you learn from it. He's eternal, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. First John one and two. That's close. No, I was I was reading there was something else you said to remind me of something I was looking at. I'm sorry. First John one, one and two says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked and at, and what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested with us. So he's eternal. He's always been. There's never been a time when he wasn't. Um, and there'll never be a time when he's not. He's eternally God. He's unchanging or immutable. Hebrews 13.8. Wow. Same yesterday and today, today and forever. <coughs> Can't say that about us, can we? Well, maybe we could. We are the same. We're the same wicked person we were <laughs> yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We're all we're still going to be sinners who've been saved by grace. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient in Colossians 2, 2, and 3. Colossians 2, 2, and 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the fullest assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows everything. When 
back in uh, the Matthew 16 when he asked the disciples what who do men say that I am he really didn't need to have the disciples tell him did he would he have known what men thought of him and what men said about him yeah he knew it was in everybody's heart he knew what they were thinking before they ever said something to him so he's always been omniscient he always knew what was going on he's perfect or sinless 2 Corinthians 5 21 we have made him be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him pretty miraculous isn't it he knew no sin and yet he became sin for us Wow. He's holy. Acts 3, 14 and 15. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We are witnesses of his holiness. He is truth in John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and will come to the Father except for me. Amen. That's the truth. So we find that he was, um, and he's all-powerful, he's omniscient. In Matthew uh, 8, 23 through 27, we didn't only read that, but he had power over creation. He could go out when he was uh, uh, sleeping in the back of the boat, and the storm was coming, and the disciples were falling apart, as we would do. They were panicking, and he wakes up, and he tells the storm to be quiet. The calm, the sea is calm, the storm stops. He has power over making that happen. He can cause them to happen, he can stop them from happening. And in Luke 4.40, he has power over sickness and death. Um, what was the old saying? When Jesus showed up, the funeral was over? Because <laughs> he could raise him from the dead, he could, he could heal their sickness. Uh, he had that kind of power. He had power over demons. Uh, when he when he he came ashore at uh, what is it Gennesaret, and uh, they had all the uh, the de- those demon possessed men, and they the demons talked to him. They knew who he was. They recognized who he was. They recognized the power he had. Don't send us into the pit. Send us into the pigs. So he lets them go into the pigs. He had power over the demons. He could tell them where they could go, where they can't go. He has power over them. Uh, even to restrict what they can and can't do. In John 11, 43 and 44, has power over death. We just talked about that in Mark 2, 3 through 12. He has power to forgive sin. That's, that's probably the most important one in our lives that, uh, that he has. Let's see, that was Mark, Mark 2, 3, 2, 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him, get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which he, the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That was the greatest thing he did for you and I. <laughs> he said, Son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. I paid the price. I've taken it, taken it upon myself. No longer do you have to bear the weight of those sins in your own life. 
his titles of deity. We call they call him Emmanuel, that is God with us, in Matthew one twenty three. Let's see, uh, Matthew one twenty three says, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us." We call him Lord, Sovereign, which we talked about in the very first part, and then we have the I Am. I am a title reserved for God. God said that I am, and Jesus said I am. One and the same. Statements are to declare the deity of Christ. Thomas's testimony of Christ's deity in John chapter 20 and verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see, and yet they believe. Thomas gave the right testimony, but if you remember the story leading up to it, he said he wasn't going to believe that Jesus was resurrected unless what? He could put his hands into the wounds and his fingers into his side, then he would believe. Yet when Jesus showed up and actually came into his presence, he realized that hey, this was my Lord and my God, the one that had saved him. Christ is the sovereign king of kings. In Matthew 28, 18, we've already quoted that one. Revelation 17, 14. Seventeen fourteen says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords, and he is the King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and the faithful. Christ is sovereign. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of all this going that takes place now. And he's coming back one day to be King of kings and to rule and to reign in the millennial kingdom. And... Uh, I don't know about you, but I close most of my prayers with, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, I'd be tickled to death just to be raptured out. and let, let this all go to whoever is out there and let them have at it. Uh, in, verses, in chapter 19 and verse 16, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh was the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No denying that he is the King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords, and he is coming to rule and to reign one day on this earth. Christ claimed to be God. In John 10, where are we at here? John 10, 31. John 10, 31, the Jews picked up a stone again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. But he wasn't just making himself out to God. He was God, and he was trying to tell them they just didn't want to believe. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they failed to, to, uh, to see him for who he really was. He is the Christ who is a Savior. Now, this, is, this was an interesting question, and it would be interesting to see how we approach this. 
It says, what is the difference between admitting that Jesus is the Savior and going beyond that and claiming that Jesus is my Savior? I'm tired of talking, so I'm listening. Maybe so the submission part, you're actually submitting if you're saying he is my savior versus. Okay. That's true. That is true. How else would you express it? And the question what's the difference between admitting that Jesus is the savior? Uh, I have unsaved family members that will admit that Jesus is the savior. The devil admits Jesus. Jesus, the devil does. He knows more scripture than a lot of pastors. So, mm-hmm. I guess he, that you belong to him. That you belong to him. Yeah, you're in the family. And claiming that Jesus is my Savior means that I have trusted him. I place my faith and my trust in him. He is my Savior. He is the one that I serve. He is the one who has redeemed me. Now, the second one. Um, what does it mean to use the title Savior when you're talking about Jesus? When do we talk about it? Pardon? Yeah. Yeah, when we're talking about when we're sharing it. When we're sharing with other people about who Jesus is and what he does and what he means in our life. You talked about that this morning in your in your message. If you weren't if you were here and heard his message this morning when when uh, you were witnessing to the guy and he said, Well, what kind of Jesus are you gonna present to me? You know. That's probably it was probably not a bad question because uh, when you think about uh, what some people present as the gospel message is not the gospel at all. It's not the Jesus that we know. Um, I haven't seen it, but somebody was talking to me this morning and said they had gone to see the movie The Jesus Revolution. I think it is. It's about, it, it's about the Jesus movement in the 60s when the hippie movement made the transition into the church and, and uh, how they went about sharing. And it was all about God is love. Everything was all about God's love. Well, it's just about God's love, but it's also about his wrath. It's also about uh, about your sin and about repentance, and those things were left out. It's a different gospel. It wasn't the gospel that we proclaim today. So, Jim, sometimes when I'm evangelizing, I ask, it, it means to be a rescuer. He rescued us. And I'll, so, I'll sometimes evangelize and I'll say, so what did he rescue you from? Yeah, and see where they go from there. Because a lot of people will talk about their sin and their life of sin. Other people say, oh, it's just from hell, like it's to come. You know, they're still doing anything wrong. But I usually talk about that being a, a rescue mm-hmm. uh, to bring it down personal. Right. Bring it personal. Right. Because they have to be, and that's, uh, that was the, uh, the Ephesus with uh, Kirk Cameron and who's Ray Comfort. Huh? Ray, Ray Comfort. Comfort. Yeah. And they, they, they would use the law because they wanted people to see their need of a Savior. They wanted to see that sin was universal. It's everybody. You know, 
How many lies does it take to be a liar? That was a great question. You know, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I got maybe one or two. Well, that makes you a liar. Well, no, I'm not. Yes, it does. How many sins does it take to be a liar? It takes one. How many murders does it take to be a murderer? Well, it takes one. You don't have to take one life to be a murderer. And so it's exposing people for what they truly are and what they truly need. Thank you for, for sharing that. According to John 3.17, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Um, we have the, the different things there. He's the Lamb of God. He's the bread of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Um, is Jesus the Savior of the world? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Then why isn't the whole world saved? We choose. We get to choose. We get to choose. We get to choose to, when he calls, effectually calls us, we get to choose to say yes or no. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot more that say no than that say yes. Because they'll say, well, maybe tomorrow, or maybe next week, or maybe next month, or maybe when I'm on my deathbed and I've had all the fun I want to have, then maybe it's a good time. But uh, maybe it's not the world we think it is that he's saving. Well, explain. Well, I'm just saying some people think it's, uh, when he's just, your universal, so you're going to save everybody. And then when he's talking about that world in the context there, he's talking about that belong to him. That belong to him. So, and my professor years ago told me, he said, even God changes your want to. So, you know, sometimes you say, well, I have free will, so I can choose what I want. Even God changes your want to. Yeah. So it's the world you have to define to understand scripture. Yeah. Very true. He's the king who comes to rule. He's the exalted Christ in uh, Daniel 7, 14 and Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Uh, let's see. We go to Philippians 2, 9. He says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I always like that verse. I like what he said when he says, every knee will bow, those in heaven and those under the earth, and they will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. I think it expresses uh, also what it's going to be like when we first get to meet him. People will say, yeah, I can't wait till I get to heaven. I want to ask him why this, that, the other thing happened. Um, from everything I read in Scripture, whenever God spoke or whenever they came in the presence even of an angel, where did they end up? <laughs> On their face. They didn't ask questions. They didn't, they, they didn't even look up. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I just, I just read it in my devotions with... When they were on the uh, on the mount, and uh, God comes down, and he and Peter had just said, "Well, um, let me build a tabernacle—one for you, and one for Elijah, and one for Moses." And right after that, God comes down in the cloud, and He speaks. So, where does Peter end up? With a mouthful of dust, he's laying face first down in the dirt, 
because God has spoken. Uh, we don't, I don't think we understand the holiness of God enough to understand what it's going to be like to be in his presence. He is holy and he's righteous and he's glorious and, and it's going to be a, a whole lot different than we think it is to be in his presence. And uh, we get to spend the rest of our eternity worshiping him. So he's the exalted Christ in Philippians 2, 8, and 9. He's at the right hand of the Father in Hebrews 1, 3. What's he doing there? Advocating for us. When we pray, when Satan makes accusations against us, he's there to defend us and to talk to the Father on our behalf. We have the second coming of Christ in Matthew 25, 31. Let's see. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's part of our, is this the right word, eschatology for the end times? Yeah. I, I just, I'm, I'm a fan of Joel Rosenberg. Anybody here know who Joel Rosenberg is? Joel Rosenberg writes some amazing novels. He really does. It's all about uh, everything that's happening in the Middle East. Novels. Novels, yes. They're, 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 they're biblical fiction, if you want to call it that idea. But the only thing with, that I find, in, because I just read a, one of his series, and uh, his eschatology is messed up. <laughs> so, it's, it's good to study your scripture, because when you read certain things, then you don't get drawn off in the wrong direction. Uh, uh, anyway, I, I, that was free. But he, he writes good books, and they're, they're really compelling books. You get into them, and his superheroes are superheroes. There's, there's, he's, he's got characters that have survived. They, have, they don't have nine lives. They've got 90 lives. Yeah, they've escaped death so many times and all these miraculous things happening. But he does have bad eschatology, just in case you ever read him. So. He's coming in judgment. Second, Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Yeah, on 7 through 10. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, and when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. 
It's coming in judgment. I think that when, it, when I think about all the things that go on in this world, what those people, especially people in power, uh, are going to have to answer for. For the things that they have done, for the things, the lies they've told, for the destruction that they've brought about, for the human misery that they've caused, and they're going to have to give an answer to God one day, and the judgment's going to be against them. Um, we have that to look forward to, I guess. His glory is revealed in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Wow. We get to come with him. <laughs> when that happens, we don't aren't the ones looking up at him coming in judgment, we are coming with him, which is a great, uh, a great promise that we have. And then the power of Christ's second coming, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the, the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. He's coming with power, there's no doubt about that. And when that second coming takes place, it's all over but the shouting. So he's going to, as they often say, you know, we know who wins the war. It doesn't matter how the battle goes here. We know who ends up winning the war. And uh, it's going to be great. In Second Peter 3.14, it says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, which basically is what Pastor just read, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, living uh, living for him, serving him, uh, living the, a life of righteousness. Um, again, that goes hand in hand with what uh, the passage that pastor has been preaching from uh, 5 and 20 and 21. It talks about the grace being brought about in righteousness, not in sin, but because of righteousness. And uh, our lives need to be more and more reflective of Christ's righteousness, of his work in us changing and transforming us on a daily basis. We're never going to arrive. Anybody tells you they arrived, then they're fooling themselves. You're never going to arrive. There's always room for growth. I've been 
I came to know the Lord in 1965. So that's umpteen years ago. <laughs> Five years before I was born. Five years before you were born. Most of us are not born. Five, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, in, uh, in those 50 years, 50 some years, I don't know how to do it, 56 I guess it is. Pardon? That's almost 60 years. I know it is. I said it's 50 some. <laughs> Baby, he's trying to humble you. Yeah, I know. Math isn't my strong point. No, it is. Really, is my strong point. But anyway, it's been a continual journey of growth. Um, I've often wished, because of the of the church we were saved in, my wife and I were saved in, was um, it was fundamental. It was sound. But there was no, uh, there really wasn't an emphasis on on discipleship from the church side. Now, the man who led me to the Lord became my spiritual father. He took me under his wing, and he did what Matthew 28 says you're supposed to do. That's make disciples. And he taught me all the things I needed to know. And uh, for my wife and I, we were both basically the only one saved in either of our families and so church became family and and that's where we we were there Sunday morning Sunday night, Wednesday night there was revival meetings, we were there every night, it didn't matter what we were there, when the doors were open we were there, we would leave family gatherings to go back and go to church on Sunday night and because uh, that's just where we wanted to be we wanted we just couldn't get enough of it. And for, for us, I don't guess it's ever changed. I look forward to Sunday. I look forward to Sunday night. I look forward to small groups. I look forward to Grace and Granted. I look forward to sometimes even... Even me. Yeah, even Mark. <laughs> hey, Jim, on verse 14, I wanted to clarify something there. You okay. talk about peace. You're talking about salvation. You're talking about justification. Peace with God. Because some of us are not living in peace. Some by obedience, some not. But he was talking about peace with God. Um, and the spotless and blameless is Christ's own. So it's talking about. So a lot of people are like, man, I just need to get some peace in my life. I get, you know, still not ready to see the Lord. You know. So it's having peace with God. He was talking about that. <coughs> yeah, because I often wonder about people who are, who say, well, I'm really afraid to die. Why would you be afraid to die? Why would you be afraid to leave this? Now, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not, I'm not really necessarily looking forward to tonight. Uh, but that's fine if it happens. Uh, I have, I suppose, selfish reasons. I got four and a half great grandchildren that I'd like pouring my life into, and some grand, grand regular trailer, and my children are still around, and I enjoy being with them, and I want to see where God takes them and how He. How he works in their lives, and if he takes me home, that's fine. I'll have to watch from heaven, I guess. I don't know if that's true. If we actually get to know what goes on here, uh, I don't think it really tells us those things. God doesn't tell us a whole lot about heaven. He tells us more about hell than he did about heaven. So, um, I guess we get to find out when we get there. Revelation five eleven through fourteen provides us a picture of what the return will look and feel like. Um, 
I'll read that for you so you don't have to turn there. No, it's chapter 5. 5, 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. And the numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's what we get to do. It's coming a day where we're going to be that multitude falls before the throne and just praises him for what he's done in our lives. I guess the big question is, has he done it in your life? And if not, why not? The offer's there. Every Sunday morning, the offer's given. Uh, so it's good for us to learn who Jesus really, really, really is and what he's done. And, and next week we're actually going to talk about his work, things that, that uh, the works that he's done in our lives and the work he's done in this church. So, any questions? We got the two docs here to answer them. Pastor would remember Dr. Sumner. Dr. Sumner, when he was here, was in my Sunday school class, and he used to say, "I'm not here to correct you, son. I'm here to keep you from falling in the ditch." <laughs> I appreciate that. Father, thank you for the time that we've had together tonight to talk about Christ, to talk about your son, to talk about who he really was and all of his attributes, the things that uh, he's done in our lives and how he's working to uh, his work to redeem those who by faith have come to him. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the truth of it. We thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of redemption. And we just thank you and rejoice in it. Bless us as we go to our homes tonight. Help us, Father, through this week to be a great witness and a testimony of your saving power and grace to the world that's around us. And we we'll praise you and thank you for all you're going to do in Christ. Amen. Amen.